This episode is brought to you by Thinknear. Their location score platform delivers the most accurate location targeting available on mobile. Visit them at locationscore.com. And by Pollen. Access your app store revenues faster and fund user acquisition straight away. To sign up, go to pollen.vc. Everybody and welcome to Untethered.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. Today, my friends, I have a returning guest. I promised you six months ago that I would bring this guest back and by, I don't know, the grace of God, I have. Martin McMillan is the founder of a company called Pollen at pollen.vc. You'll see their logo up on Untethered's website. They are somebody that I cherish because not only is their business model and their company pretty amazing and very unique, but they're also come on and agree to sponsor on Tether.tv. But that has nothing to do with this episode. What we are talking about today is an update about the company. For those of you who don't know what Pollen does, basically they are the savior for a number of apps out there. They actually bring your money sooner to your pocket from the app stores out in the world. And I'm going to let Martin give us an update about what the company does and where they are standing right about now as I bring Martin in. Martin, live from London. My friend, welcome back. Hey, Rob, nice to be back. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you know, this is this has been a long time coming out. You know, these updates are, are wonderful because I love to take a look back at the episode that we did six months ago, which was September 2014, as you were in the, that frenetic, uh, I, I don't know, insane pace of launch and startup and relationship building and awareness making and all those things and and hope and vision. And six months later, I, I want to see if that, that excitement and enthusiasm and the momentum that you had um, is still actually happening. So how, how are things going at Pollen, Martin? Things are going really well. We've been we've been uh, really blown over by the by the level of interest we have uh, had in in the products and what we're doing. Um, it's been interesting to see when we when we first sort of uh, came out of our, our shell, if you like, is about right right around the time we did uh, the interview about six months ago. Um, we we f we figured we look we have something new in the market. We have something that developers kind of really need because. The, uh, the founding premise of the company is we had this problem ourselves as developers. We couldn't find a, a solution in the market, so we set out to fix it. So what we found is that uh, the, the message and the, 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 the problem, if you like, has, uh, has resonated. It's been very easy to identify with the market. But like anything new, it, take, it takes people a little bit of time um, to, uh, to, you know, to, to get their heads around it, if you like, and identify it as a problem. Now, fortunately for us, um, the payment delay uh, is, is is very clear and articulate. There's no um, uh, there's no ambiguity around it. And <clears throat> really, for us, the what we figured out is initially we we asked the question is Do you want the money quicker? And we found that most developers said Yeah, that would be that would be great. But the much smarter question to ask behind that was What would you do if you had the money quicker? And that's where we really hit upon. I mean, particularly strong. Um, Resonance in the gaming sector that, that we've seen, although although what we do provides uh, liquidity across, um, you know, to, really to any app developer, but particularly in gaming, people said, "Well, what I'd do is I'd look to take down the cash, I'd look to uh, put it onto my prepaid credit card, and then I'd go and buy a bunch of ads uh, on the self serve networks <clears throat> in order to increase my install base." So really, when we figured out a lot of the money was was actually being recycled directly into the ad networks. 
then um, we were able to put deals in place ourselves with the ad networks and facilitate that in a much easier way. So really, I think the big learning for us is not, it's not a case of, do you want the money? It's what would you do with the money if you had it quicker? I, I, that's so fascinating because, you know, the initial premise is, you're right, there is a big problem around the wait for the cash. But obviously, that's, that's temporal, right? And there are very few companies, I would say, in the grand scheme of things, you know, they're the top 3% that are actually suffering from that problem, which is literally like I have too much money waiting 30 days out and I need to extract that. The rest of us are looking for ways to bolster and boost our business as a result of the money that they've earned. And I think that's a great sign. You know, you're a good company when you're thinking about extracting the money to go put it back into your company to grow your company as opposed to put it in your pocket, right? So that, that's very true. But actually, one of the things we've been surprised about along the journey is we found out that... Um, you know, even the very, very biggest of, of companies do some kind of factoring of their receivables. Um, and so they, you know, they, they may do it directly with the bank. They may have a, a, a very different relationship with their provider. Um, but because it's just a very, very efficient way to deploy capital for your game to be uh, or your app to be funding its own user acquisition, um, then even the big public companies do this. So really what we do is uh, we provide a solution for the long tail um, to deploy their capital efficiently by offering effectively a form of receivables financing for app developers of any size. I, I love that. It, I mean, you know, I used to factor, as we talked about, uh, you know, six months ago, I used to factor when I ran my tech companies, I would factor research and development, right? So in, in Ontario, we get uh, government credits, right, for any kind of new technology advancement. And so it covers quite a bit of uh, wages when it comes to our engineers, software engineers, hardware developers, those kinds of things. And, and then at the end of the year, you get a chunk of the cash back. And it's a lot of money based on how much money you spent in wages. And it's usually six or nine months down the road where you get it. So you go to a bank and you say, here's the guarantee from the federal government or the provincial government, give me my money. And they, they take it at points. And that's ultimately where your business started. But I love the idea that, that it's, it's for the, the greater betterment of the business as opposed to, um, you know, lining pockets. And, and I think that does that, when you look at a business now, um, does that, that must weigh heavily is that you're looking at companies who want to take the money and put it into the ad networks to grow their business. Correct. I think I mean, one of the things we, we identified is really the concept of the funding gap. So it's not, I mean, it's pretty widely accepted that unless you happen to be the next, uh, you know, crossy road or flappy bird or whatever, you're going to have to, to pay money to acquire users. Uh, and obviously, it's a whole different argument around, you know, can you pay money into the ad network to acquire users profitably? That's a whole separate area of discussion. But if you can, uh, then you recognize that from day one, in this all-important period post-launch, which is actually where, where we're doing, uh, where we're doing a, a, a great proportion of our business just now, um, is basically if you, if you figure the, the launch is so important, the post-launch activity is really important in terms of user acquisition, you have to pay money to acquire users but generally you don't have credit facilities from ad networks. So if you put all those facts together, there's a funding gap. So you start at point one here, and 60 days later you're going to get your first money out here. Therefore, you've got a funding gap from here to here. So how are you going to fund it? Are you going to use your venture capital to fund that user acquisition? Not a very efficient way to deploy their money. Are you going to use your personal credit cards? Well, that's fine if it's maybe just a few thousand, but if you're talking about a few hundred thousand, then that becomes very, very problematic. Um, and very often we see um, at that stage people who've had maybe some early success thinking, I don't have the enough rocket fuel to fuel the fire here, so maybe I'm going to have a publisher relationship uh, instead and actually bring someone else in to effectively fund to front and fund the user acquisition behind it. Or in all too many cases, you see people think, you know, I just can't afford to do this. 
So I'm going to do nothing at all and very often uh, just drop right off the charts. Isn't that funny? Because your own success can lead to your own demise right there, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things we did is a uh, we did a, a piece of research with our friends at um, Priori Data in Berlin. And what we did is we benchmarked uh, 40 free-to-play games and 40 paid games that launched after July of uh, 2014. And we... Uh, the, these, so these were all games that had had uh, a, an Apple feature um, to, you know, to various different degrees. And we benchmarked the peak day of revenues and the peak day of downloads for that. And then we built up the curves in aggregate about how quickly the numbers fall off. Uh, and from that, from that research, we found that it, you know, in aggregate, uh, and that's the caveat here, because a, um, a lot of these games were supported by big UA campaigns. Most were supported by none. And in aggregate, uh, the revenues dropped off by 85% within 60 days. Oh, my God. That's disheartening. So, you know, when you get given, like, the golden ticket to the chocolate factory, and then you just see this, you don't have enough, uh, enough gas in the tank to fuel it, when you should be, when your app is riding high in the charts, that's when you want to be uh, doubling down on user acquisition. And so often they just don't have access to either the credit or the funding, and they just drop off so quickly. So, yeah, super disheartening from an app developer point of view because – so many pe people put in their heart and soul and a lot of money into these things, and to have to have the golden ticket and then effectively to uh, to squander it is really, uh, you know, it, it, it's really uh, it's really bad to see that happen so often. Is is you know, Martin, is the app game a big company game now? Like when you look at the top charts of all of the uh, uh, you know of all the different categories. Uh, in, in various app stores, you start to see trends happening, right? So, you, you know, in games, they're big networks now. They're big companies that are dominating the mobile app game world. And I'm not saying all the time, but at any given point, you've got the big guys like EA there. And you've got the, you, you know, and the same thing when it comes to, uh, you know, productivity apps. You've got Microsoft and you've got Google and you've got all these companies that are that are fighting the smaller guys. Do small companies have a chance? Uh, we, we think so, and we think there's a really great opportunity. So one of the things we're starting to recognize is this is the emergence of the long tail. So right now you see effectively an L-shaped revenue curve where you have the majority of the money earned by very few, the revenues drop off a cliff, and then you have around 30,000 app developers beyond that earning more than, say, 1000 or $2,000 a month. Now, what we're tracking is, uh, and we're, we're coming out with some research, again, with our friends at Priori um, shortly on this, is uh, the changing shape of the long tail. Now, what seems to be happening is those who really understand user acquisition, the guys right at the top of the charts, you know, obviously it's, you know, particularly again in the gaming sector, people leave those companies, they have the, the understanding and the knowledge of user acquisition in a freemium world, and you see a lot of uh, different gaming startups with some really experienced guys from the from um, you know from from the big companies <clears throat> setting up their own studios, each having their own kind of recipe, if you like. Um, so one of the things we're seeing is some of those companies starting to kind of work their way up the charts now, and that curve gradually flattening off to become a kind of more normally distributed uh, um, shakedown, if you like, of um, of um, different app developers. So that's a pretty interesting trend. And also the other thing is we've seen that we, we're in touch with a number of developers now who who are not necessarily aspiring to be you know, in the top 10. They might find that being number 50 in the charts works really nicely for them because they're a, you know, they're they're not a venture-backed business, they're not a published business, but they are 
you know, what, what could be thought of as a lifestyle business, uh, and I say lifestyle in a really kind of positive term, not in any way kind of derogatory. So what we're seeing is people, let's say you're a serious gaming company and you want to, uh, you want to launch your new games into the market. Effectively, until now, you've had two different choices. One, you would go down the venture capital route, in which case you're going to have uh, your venture firm in order to generate the returns um, which, are, which they require uh, in a business that's very much hits-driven. Um, you're going to be on the path to try and be the next supercell. Um, so the other the other side of it is you go down the publisher route. So you say, Look, I'm great at making games or apps, but I need the app to be published by someone else who's got the domain expertise. So if you look at the, the venture route, you're giving away control of your company or some control of your company, and you're going to be on a path to uh, to, to try and really, really make it huge. Um, if you go down the publisher route, you're going to give away a revenue share uh, for as long as that deal's in place for what the publisher is going to be doing for you. So what we're trying to create um, with Pollen is effectively a third way so that you, if you were able to develop, let's say, Bootstrap to get your Apple game to market and prove that you have a formula of user acquisition that is, um, <clears throat> is ROI positive, i.e. you put a dollar into user acquisition, you get more than a dollar out in LTV. If you can do that, then what we're really creating is a, is, is a third way in which you can uh, successfully market and promote your app without having to go down the traditional routes, if you like, of game financing. And so we have uh, we have people that we were working with. Let's say it's an eight to ten person studio. They're very very happy doing their own thing. They don't want venture capital lords and masters. They don't want the publisher. They just want to do their own thing, uh, and they can make a very very nice return sitting at number 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, whatever it might be. Uh, depending on their cost profile, and I think that's something to be um, to, to be really applauded and encouraged. It's funny though the the aspiration of most uh, game developers or app developers is, you, you know, they're judged um, not only by investors, by their banks, by their peers, and themselves. Oftentimes, they're judged by their ranking in the app stores, right? And and uh, you're you're right. I, I met very many companies in in the mobile app and mobile game development specifically world. And I ran a mobile game company for three years. And we were judged based on what countries we dominated in. Unfortunately, the last company that I ran was, you know, the game company was was dominant in South Korea. Um, and, uh, and we didn't make a dime off of it, but we had 20 million downloads. But that's great for something, right? Uh, and then we morphed over to a publishing standpoint, right? So we became the publisher because all of a sudden we had the relationships to publish other people's games into. So, but you're right. A lot of the time, the self-worth comes from the ranking and you have to adjust what that means based on what your expectations are. There are there's only one soft sell. And and I, I think those opportunities to, to be dominant like that um, are admirable, but very difficult to achieve. Yeah, you know, very, very diff difficult. But it's, uh, I think, the the kind of self-publishing model of the app store, where people can, you know, <clears throat> if they understand the concepts and what they're trying to achieve, and they're very, very clear in their objectives, um, then uh, you know, to do that, to do that profitably, um, can be very, you know, very, very liberating um, for for the for the sector as well. You can get people who, you know, might be very, very happy with. Uh, yeah, a certain level of income that doesn't mean they're at the top of the charts. They don't care about who they're judged by. They care about, you know, I go to work, I generate a really nice return uh, for what I for doing something I love, and that's, um, yeah, I think that that's a very kind of laudable place to be. You think that uh, you know, just from your perspective, after being in this business and doing what you're doing for the last many years, when when you think about the app world, I mean, I talk to people all over the world, and they say like, the app economy's done, Rob. You know, get over it. Apps are over, finished. Get over it. And then I talk to a guy like Chuck Martin, who I do a show with. 
And we find out that, you know, when, when somebody downloads a, a, just say like a retail commerce app, 70% of those people, it might be a small percentage, like 25% of the people globally download these retail apps, but 70% of those people that download buy something. And then I think you're an idiot to think that the apps world is dying because they're pretty effective and they engender a deeper brand love, right? So what's your take? Obviously, you're in the middle of the app world. What's, what's, what do you hear about when you talk to VCs, you talk to the ad networks, you talk to the entrepreneurs, what are you hearing about their perspective on, on what's going on in the app world? I, think, I mean, look, there's all sorts of different apps and different games competing for effectively a half an inch square of real estate. <laughs> crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at if you look at someone like Uber, who's you know probably paid a couple of bucks to acquire me, but is going to make that back in the first in the first ride I took and the subsequent rides over the last two or even three years now, um, you know that that's very very small amount of money in terms of user acquisition for them. Uh, and you know that that app is going to stay on my phone and be a part of my life for the foreseeable future. So then you look at someone who's effectively a let's say a gaming company who might have a, a thirty day LTV at best, trying to persuade me to buy you know add-ons for the uh, whatever it is the, the the game is. They're competing on the same stage for me as a user, um, and you know and often paying crazy amounts of money. So. I think one of the things we, we expect to see, and we don't have all the all the answers here, but just in terms of just thinking market economics, is that that the ad networks will find and, and consumers will find different places to go for different types of um, of content and, and curation of stuff that's interesting to them. Now, yeah, it might all come back to the same app store as the delivery mechanism, but I think in terms of discovery, people will, uh, you know, there will be a lot of innovation in terms of app discovery. People finding things that are interesting to them that have been recommended or curated for them. Um, and then the price points in terms of what people will pay for certain types of uh, apps, given their monetization schedules, whatever, I think will sort of uh, will figure, it, figure itself out over time. It's very hard to imagine a scenario in 12, 24, 36 months that you still have this sort of L shape of revenues, you still have uh, you know some of the same dynamics. So I don't think it's fair to... I don't think it's fair to snapshot the market today and say, "Hey, this is broken. This is never going to get fixed." I think this is just, you know, this is first base of the uh, of the the kind of realization of mobile, and there's there's a there's a long way to go. People are smart. People figure a lot of stuff out. Do you think that there is still opportunity for um, for companies to build discovery engines? Because you know, Chomp was one of them. Like they all seem to get get picked. Got they all seem to have been acquired very early on in their life span. But do you think that there's opportunity still out there? Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily discovery networks that are some, in some way trying to sort of compete directly with the platforms. Yeah, uh, I think you know whether it's uh, whether it's destination sites where people are are maybe into a certain type of game really like, or some of the more traditional editorial and curation um, sites that people point you towards. So I don't think this is like a threatening anti-competitive thing. I think this is a you know just um, different hubs of interest and different uh, different ways of. Of uh, of sharing as well. I think there's a, there's a great um, opportunity in friends recommending games, you know, throughout their social networks that is uh, currently underexploited. We're seeing some kind of interesting interesting people come into that space, and I think that's that's a great way. You know, if my friends are interested in a certain game or app, and they you know they want to recommend it to me, and maybe they get some kind of reward for doing so, then um, then great. But there's you know when you increase the level of kind of social curation in there. Uh, I think that's a pretty positive step for the market. Yeah, it's interesting. You could start to see, you know, how 
Um, a lot of uh, early social networks kind of leveraged the the social sphere, we'll say, the social graph, which was, you know, uh, maybe, Martin, you knew a lot about wine, so I listened to your wine advice, and another friend of mine may know a lot about the New York Yankees, so I listened to his advice, and, and I, I wonder if there's an opportunity in there, and I just think out loud that maybe there is, to be able to say, listen, any app that Martin says about wine, I want, to, I want that to surface, but if he talks about the Yankees, I'm not so interested because this guy over here knows more about the Yankees than Martin right uh, i'm generalizing maybe you know a lot about the yankees but but the the whole idea here is that that social curation based on uh, how you perceive your social graph could be pretty valuable i think when it comes to uh when it comes to discovery and apps yeah absolutely and and, and you're right i know absolutely nothing about the yankees I'm, <laughs> a, I'm quite a big wine fan and i'm uh, i'm i'm a big uh, i'm a big vivino fan which i think is a, a great wine app see there you go listen to that there's <laughs> Right now, I've just got to figure out how to extract it out of audio and video to get it in this. Yeah, that's a whole other problem with no, no revenue opportunities. Um, so, you know, what you, you we talked about this a little bit before about how the old world and the new world don't connect when it comes to these advertising networks. Uh, because I know a lot of companies are, are butting up against this right now, which is that uh, just like banks and entrepreneurship, they're like oil and water. They do not mix, right? Uh, the credit risk or the credit portfolio is too, too, too difficult to accept. What are you saying? Why do you say that the old world and new world don't connect? Well, I think so. Uh, so I've, I'm um, lucky or unlucky enough to have spanned decent stretches of time in both. And the the, the problem that we fixed here at Poland was uh, was encountered only because uh, we had a look through into basically into both sides. So traditionally, I mean, I think one of the key things that, that we that we helped fix in the ecosystem was the provision of credit. By ad networks to developers looking to acquire users for their um, for their for their apps or their games. Um, <clears throat> so the, the the other side of it is where you look at traditional financial services who have got very established systems and processes. You know, in in our space, it's very much tied to uh, it's thought of as what would have been traditionally the invoice discounting space. Um, and yet, in digital marketplaces, there are no invoices. So you go to an invoice discounter to try and fix a problem that has amazing credit quality and characteristics, but no invoice, and they just they, they couldn't get their heads around it. Whereas, <laughs> you know, with a technology hat on, you're kind of thinking, well, this is, this is great, because I can actually take a feed directly from the central billing system of an Apple or a Google, and I can use that to, uh, to price my risk. So it's this sort of... Uh, this sort of dichotomy, if you like, so you, you can see both things from a, from a different viewpoint, and you understand in the, in the fast-moving um, apps and ad space that you know, most people uh, don't have a traditional financial services background. And then, you know, I think in the early days when we talked about it, people said, look, there's just nothing you can do. It's, uh, you know, it, it's Apple or it's Google or it's Amazon or it's any of the big marketplaces. They pay when they pay. There's nothing you can do. And it's only when we started to peel back the onion and to ask the questions like, well, okay, if this was possible and this was a result, i.e. you were able to draw down the money you were already earning, recycle that quickly back into user acquisition, and that's going to fuel your growth in a really, really capital efficient way. That's when we, um, that's when we kind of spotted how to connect the old world and the new world together in, in a way that solved a problem that we ourselves had. It's, it's, it's so interesting. I, whenever I hear these stories, I think of, um, you know, Doc from uh, Back to the Future trying to basically hold to, you know, the, the um, power outlet together, swinging from a church. And there you are, Martin, right in the middle of that, trying to connect the two like this of two worlds that sometimes don't seem like that they should ever connect or will ever connect. So yeah, uh, we've had a few of those moments. Also. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Uh, but um, 
So you have, uh, I mean, you're based in London, but you you, you travel all around and, and uh, you're you're uh, in and out of San Francisco. Uh, you talk about opening up a new office in Helsinki. I'm interested in understanding um, what the what the global perspective, your global perspective is on what's going on in the state of funding and app funding in the world today. Because we are looking around and I, it isn't cookie cutter. I mean, what's being funded in North America or the United States or San Francisco, that little microcosm of San Francisco, or microclimate, app microclimate, is very different from my city, which is very different from London, which is very different from Helsinki. So do you have any insight about what you're seeing from a global standpoint around app funding, state of, uh, state of the world? Uh, it's, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's very much, it's very clustered. <laughs> yes. So, you know, as you say, you can almost, you can almost draw it down to cities rather than even states or anything else. If, if you look in, if you look in the U.S., Yep. Um, Canada's got a very vibrant game scene. Uh, we're doing more and more in Canada. I think that the tax breaks in, can, in, in Canada are superb, and that's given rise to a lot of uh, um, a lot of entrepreneurial activity there. Um, Helsinki is is great as well. Obviously, you've seen uh, you've seen a lot of um, new gaming companies start up um, in Helsinki over the last couple of years, and then you know in in, in some other places. And we we are to a large extent, you know, we're, we're very focused on, on some key territories, and then. We receive a lot of inbound uh, inquiries from um, uh, from others. So you see some amazing gaming companies, for example, in uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, we've uh, you know we've had some very interesting discussions with um, uh, companies based in in Brazil as well. So just I mean, really all, all around the world. So it's very much a sort of uh, a country by country thing. There are different uh, different types of of games and apps that come out of different territories. I mean, Germany has a lot of productivity apps. Uh, for example, um, so it's it, 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 it's funny that, that there's no sort of uh, there's no real recipe for it. It's just understanding what sort of apps are created in what sort of different territories, and uh, you know we're very much driven where the need, where the uh, where the inquiry is for um, for our products and what we do. I think I wonder if, if anybody's ever done a study on the, uh, the the character of a country, and and kind of overlap the kind of apps that come out of that. So Germany, I, I would think productivity rigid structured right and and maybe canada a little bit more loose little games you know that kind of stuff um i just i wonder if there is if somebody's ever just kind of mapped the the way that the country's perceived and the apps that are emerging from them because that would be very interesting like japanese apps versus canadian apps uh, but uh, you know it's just neither here nor there just an interesting observation at least no, I, th I think i think i think that, that's right we'll uh, you know we'll, we'll look into that and see if we can uh, see if we can some interesting stats well, you know, and, and then you start to look for the outliers in those countries, right? So that where maybe in Germany, it's not the company that it's not the productivity app that's that's emerging or the, the company that's building the productivity app. It's it, they're doing something over here, which will kind of lead to a trend in German in, in the German app economy. Because I, I, I wonder about this, where everybody starts to think like everybody else, right? So we start to see, as you said, clusters in the app funding world. I mean, everybody is kind of diving into this live video stream, right? Like Meerkat and Periscope. And then it's going to be bad, bad, bad. There's five or six other guys that have emerged. And I'm not saying that they're copycats. They're all working on it at the same time. But I'm always interested in what creates a cluster like that where everybody has the same idea at the same time and all those apps and companies emerge at the same time. It freaks me out a little bit because group think like that. And then every one of us goes, wow, that's pretty cool. Why didn't I think of that? Right. But because they're not hard, complicated ideas and they've emerged from on the backs of others. But I just wonder, how do those ideas come from? And you sitting in that in that spot 
which is kind of pre-VC, where VCs are telling people to go to you to you know work out the business model. You you just have a great vantage point of those companies that are are going to emerge and quite possibly be those next uh, you know clusters or trends that that come out of these countries or or cities. It's a pretty great spot to be in. Yeah, we we definitely see the value in building a relationship early. Uh, so and you know, as a result, yeah, we get to see <clears throat> we get to see, see see some interesting things. So we get to meet a lot of companies very early in the life cycle, and we also get to see interesting ways of user acquisition as well. So people are always trying to test the boundaries around how to acquire users profitably. So we see some uh, we see some interesting fringe cases. The thing about that is that no one wants when you find something that really works for you, you want to keep <laughs> completely stum about it because you don't want the cat to get out the bag. Um, so it's not it's not something that people shout from the, the treetops about. So I've got the next way to acquire users. It's the full. Oh. Yeah, and, and and watch your CPI just go like right off the scale. The more people that tell you tell, the more expensive it gets. That's it. But are you really seeing innovative innovation there in user acquisition? Other than uh, you know, there are people like accountants that kind of you know uh, brush up against the law, but it's still legal. Um, now, are you seeing some innovative uh, ways of, of user acquisition? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are, you don't have to tell us, but I'm just like... No, I yeah. mean, there, there's a lot. Of, I mean, for me, once you get to the, you know, I mean, once you're talking about two, three, four dollar CPIs, if you think about it in the real world, that could be, uh, you know, you and I going to the going to the corner and saying, hey, I'll buy you a cup of coffee if you install my app on your phone, right? <laughs> so when, when you get up to those, those sorts of numbers, there is, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things you can do. I mean... Um, you see increasingly amount of, uh, of of billboard advertising and traditional kind of TV advertising and so on as well. Yeah. And really, it's it's all about it's all down to attribution. If you can um, if you can work out the right formula across all sorts of different media channels, not just you know some of the traditional ads channels which are getting super expensive. There, there's always going to be innovation there. There's always going to be people looking for a way, um, you know, just using a bit of psychology rather than just saying, "Hey, what's the cost of an ad to acquire a user today?" Working out how you can get to people at the right time, the right demographic, and making sure you can attribute it. You know, you're never going to see uh, see the pace of innovation in that space dry up. I think. You know, and you saw that with Soft Cell and and uh, and the Super Bowl and Liam Neeson, which I thought was one of the greatest ads I've ever seen on television. Right. Um. So like they're spending money, but it, can this continue? You know, I I always wonder is is this. You know, when 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 companies get fifty or sixty million dollars, and we look at like something like Angry Birds, right? Is that they're no longer part of that conversation yet? They've had sixty million dollars put into them, and they've generated a ton of money. Like no argument there. But I mean, can these companies still succeed with that kind of money being put in front of them, where there really isn't? It doesn't matter if you're spending four or five or six dollars to acquire a user. Um, can, can is this viable still? Well, if you've created an amazing game where you've got a $10 LTV and it takes you <clears throat> six months or 12 months to to realize all the LTV, you can you can pay you know whatever you need to pay um, to acquire that user. So there are obviously those that are extremely good at um, at creating games and and, and monetizing uh, users over time. Um, I did an interesting interview the other day, which is around uh, games companies being public companies. Hmm. And whether whether there was the right sort of recipe there, and you know, one of the things we, we we talked through was the the fact that you know it's such a hits driven business. So a lot of uh, public game companies actually there's a there's a real concentration in terms of where the revenues are made, uh, you know down to you know one or a, or a, excuse me a handful of titles. Then you look at the the sort of DNA of gaming companies. So many people that work for gaming companies want to set up their own gaming company. So uh, I think for some of those guys, you know, hiring and, and retention is an issue. 
And so you see, you know, I do, it's funny from a cash flow point of view and so on, you can, you can build a really strong case for that. It's just sometimes from a kind of psychology point of view, you see, yeah, you may have a really, really successful formula, but you know, are you diversified enough um, to, you know, to have the sort of like the hits factories, a bit like the record labels in a way, they put so much money into A&R and into finding a portfolio of different artists where that portfolio is, is, is pretty wide across a lot of different genres. And they've been able to make that portfolio work um, successfully for a long, for a, a large number of uh, years. The with with uh, publicly quoted gaming companies, there is a kind of different set of um, uh, set of dynamics, and we we, need, we just need to see how some of that plays out. You know, there's that stat um, in um, in venture investing that uh, you know two out of ten. Uh, every, two out of every ten investments succeed, and I wonder if that's kind of the same kind of metric that we'll put it to to gaming companies or app companies. Is that here are the two that are driving incredible returns? Here are the two that are dead, and then here are the six living dead that are just kind of floating around and, and not going to generate a return that was expected, but still not dying, but not living. They call those the living dead. I wonder if there's going to be that kind of um, split when it comes to to gaming companies. I think the, the the good thing in the in the app and the game economy is you have access to pretty much real-time data yes. so if you you know it, it's not necessarily some some really sort of long-term you don't have to wait five years to find out yeah, exactly you yeah. can tell if, if, if you put a dollar into ua and you get 150 out then you know keep doing it do it at scale if you put a dollar in you get 90 cents out you probably shouldn't do it at all or wait till you've got your monetization hooks and you know i mean it's, it sounds like a patronizingly obvious thing to say but it's amazing <laughs> how many games companies don't don't uh, don't look at that it's okay martin i'm i'm slow it's all right. You can, you can, I don't think of it as patronizing at all. But um, now, I, my last question for you is, is, is very clear, is that uh, you are no longer, you're, you're not just a London-based or SFO-based or whatever, Europe or uh, American-based company. You're getting, you're getting pulled from everywhere in the world. Is there, is there a place that you're getting a considerable amount of market pull that's, that's been surprising to you? Uh, I mean, certainly um, what we've seen is some slightly, well, if I think about it in terms of uh, Helsinki and the, the Finnish gaming scene is is, uh, is very very hot. There's a lot of innovation there. Mm-hmm. Um, some countries within Eastern Europe as well, uh, real hotbeds of activity. Um, and there are, you know, Canada is also super interesting from us. Um, so we haven't, um, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time in some of the more emerging markets yet. But we have had a reasonable amount of inquiry in from uh, from Brazilian developers, which is pretty interesting. I think. Yeah, every country, as we talked about, they have their own dynamics in terms of what type of apps they create, what they're sort of known for, uh, and you know, right down into into cities and clusters. So um, it's just interesting. I mean, we can be data driven by by that in terms of who's doing what, where. Uh, there's so much data around either either public data or um, paid for data uh, that we can. You know, we like to be kind of data driven in our in our biz dev decisions. Very cool. Well, I appreciate this. You know, to get an update about what you're doing, it doesn't sound like you've stopped. It doesn't sound like you've slowed down. It sounds like you've refined what it is that you've done. And I, I love the fact that you started with the premise, this is our challenge, which are people not getting paid fast enough. And then what it led to was that the real problem, which was what they're going to do with that money. So they're not getting paid fast enough. And they can't reinvest in their business to grow their user base. And I love the fact that you explored that deeper. I love the fact that you're also getting so much information and so much data from around the world that you become a really great perspective 
on how and what, what what's emerging, what trends are emerging, what games are emerging, what countries or cities or clusters are emerging. I think that that to me is one of the one of the greatest uh, fascinations of what you guys are doing with with Pollen. So you know, keep doing what you're doing. I'm glad to see that the momentum is, is there and, and that uh, you're continuing to grow. Really appreciate it. Great stuff. Thanks a lot for your time. Well, we've been speaking with Martin McMillan, who is the founder of Pollen. Go to pollen.vc, P-O-L-L-E-N.vc. Find out a little bit more information about those. You can also check out uh, episode number 500, 532 on TV. That was our original episode that we did last September, September 2014. If you want a little bit more background on what Pollen is doing and uh, what, uh, what Martin's background is as well there. So, uh, Martin, I thank you so much for being a part of TV again. Thank you, Rob. And for those of you who are listening, watching, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you for making it this far into the episode, and we will see you next time on Untether.com.